This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Dollars and Change from Philadelphia at the annual CEO Connection Convention, geared exclusively to the issues pertinent to mid-market business leaders. Here are your hosts, Cheryl Kuhlman and Sandy Hunt. Welcome back. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM's Business Radio. I'm Sandy Hunt alongside my co-host, Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are coming to you here from the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You will hear the energy of the attendees chatting sort of as they come in and out of sessions here behind us. And we have four more great guests from this year's attendees for you in this next segment. So I'd like to welcome Terry Andrews, who's the National Public Relations Director at RSM. Welcome, Terry. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excellent. So RSM is an audit tax and consulting company, correct? That is correct. Tell us a little bit about how, how big you are, where you guys are geographically. This is the U.S. Uh, division, right, that we're correct. talking about. That is correct. I am with RSM US LLP. We are the largest member organization of RSM International. We have about 10,000 employees and about 90 offices nationwide here in the U.S. We focus on providing tax, audit, and consulting services primarily to the middle market. Well, it's a good place to be then here at this (laughs) mid-market convention here. Um, So you guys launched a, a, a charity, a foundation in 2014. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what spurred the creation of that and what it's focused on. Certainly. So our firm has been in existence since 1926, and stewardship has always been one of our core values since our firm was founded way back when. And we did indeed launch the RSM U.S. Foundation in 2014 so that we could support and enhance our focus on stewardship. And it's all about building tomorrow's middle market business leaders. So we're focused on organizations that provide education for students and organizations that enhance health um, and um, uh, health education and other outcomes for children. Got it. So it's focused on, you know, when you think about the pipeline of the future mid-market leaders, you're thinking down to childhood and sort of, you know, focusing on education. Now, was that a passion of RSM's? prior to the launch of the foundation and the foundation launch was a way to sort of do more and and more effectively? You're exactly right. Uh, Again, stewardship has been one of our core values since the firm was founded and our employees get really excited when they have an opportunity to support their local community. So the foundation was a way to kind of organize those efforts a little more and give us a little more focus so that we can, um, as a collective team, focus on, again, building tomorrow's middle market leaders through education, housing, hunger, uh, initiatives that are intended to help children be more successful in their futures. And it seems um, a a really valuable way to be focusing on the middle market because I I know that we've talked often about a lot of our students, and again, we're at a business school, think about the Fortune 500. They think about the really big companies, and they don't realize what great opportunities there are in the middle market area, right? It, exactly. And what, one of the things that we you know, see from our interviews here in, in mm-hmm. past years is that there's a wide breadth of different kinds of businesses included in that. So there's a lot of opportunity. There is indeed a lot of opportunity, and I think you're exactly right. Uh, Historically, the middle market has been a bit underserved and a bit undercovered when it comes to media coverage. But if you think about it, they actually make up about 40% of the nation's GDP and are responsible for about a third of the hiring, third of the jobs in this country. So they're a significant force, um, and we, RSM, are trying to raise awareness of the importance of the middle market on the economy. Yeah. And so you talk about the focus on education, hunger, you know, really trying to focus on um, that supply chain of future mid-market future leaders, leaders from, yeah. from a young age. And that is an expansive impact area to, to focus on, right? You could do private schools, public schools, charter schools, nutrition in schools, nutrition at home, nutrition education, like the list goes on and on. How do you decide where to, to focus your energy? Uh, well, certainly it's focused on, again, supporting organizations that support children uh, in those areas, housing, mm-hmm. hunger, and education. And we you know, want to leave it a little broad because we want our employees to have some leeway as well in choosing the organizations that mean the most to them and that are most impactful in the communities where they live and work. Sure, with 90 different offices, you have that kind of flexibility that way. Right, yep. exactly. So mm-hmm. what does it look like? Does each office have you know, a, a budget for doing programming? Does each employee get to access 
some funds and some days off. Tell us a little bit about what that looks looks like. Certainly. So uh, certainly it's both, a little bit of, of both, a little uh, financial support and some time off. We have an annual volunteer day where thousands of our employees get out in the communities where they live and work. They work with their local communities to identify organizations that will, that will you know, benefit most from our volunteer efforts. And we typically have employee councils at each of our locations who work with those nonprofits and select them and, and identify the activities, again, that will have the most impact. We also have the foundation where we have a Dollars for Doers program so our employees can amplify their efforts by applying for additional support through uh, the foundation. Mm-hmm. We have scholarships available through our foundation. And we also have an annual Pursue Your Passion program that we started a few years back when the company celebrated its 90th anniversary. And we originally called it 90-99 because we were celebrating the 90th anniversary by giving $90,000 to nine employees. So each employee got $10,000 to do something that they wanted to do, a dream or passion of theirs. Of theirs individually, not necessarily an impact project? That's right. It was a passion of theirs personally. And that first year, every single employee chose a project that would benefit their community. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. so it's, it's broadened, but it's still in place today several years later and again this year several of those activities are community-based community-focused programs that are that are um, impacting local communities we had one employee who just got back from Rwanda he's been supporting young girls there for a number of years and actually had an opportunity to go there and meet some of the young ladies that he's been helping over the years so a lot of really unique and interesting uh, activities take place through that program interesting very cool we're talking to Terry, Terry Andrews the National Public Relations Director at RSM here on dollars and change. And I'm curious, you know, as as we see these trends in business, as impact is becoming a more main stage, mainstream, um, you know, component of, of business operations, how are you seeing the work that's being done in the foundation um, intersecting or amplifying the, the work that's being done in the tax audit and consulting arm? Well, it's an, an, an interesting program. Uh, the foundation actually allows us opportunities to partner with our clients and prospects out in the community. A number of our clients are nonprofits. So there have been opportunities where we've been able to work with them and or they've been able to help identify, you know, we're okay, but this other organization here can really use some help by your uh, your people. So it's a great relationship building mm-hmm. opportunity. We do invite a lot of our clients to partner with us on those volunteer activities as well so that we can work alongside them and get to know them even better. Got it. So are these opportunities for your employees to be doing like pro bono auditing and consulting and things like that with different organizations? Are they using their, you know, core day-to-day employee skills? Well, typically what happens is our employees collect, uh, gather in groups, and they will perhaps go to a school that's been uh, damaged by hurricanes. We had this happen in Texas. And, uh, you know, one of the local schools there was has sustained a lot of damage and was still in need of repair. So our employees in our local offices there got together and did a lot of, you know, they rolled up their sleeves. Got out, they got out there and they worked. They painted. They restocked the library. They uh, planted new plants, a lot of different things. So it's really dependent on what the community needs. It tends not to be as much pro bono type work as it is. Uh, group work where our opportunities another added benefit of that is our employees have opportunities to build teams uh, and to work with people within our organization that they don't typically work with they're employee led as well so some employees who may not necessarily have leadership opportunities in their normal day-to-day work have opportunities to build those skills through volunteer day and other volunteer efforts that our firm does so one of the things that we we have uh, a lot of discussions about are usually about employees um, and how companies can um, really shape themselves to the relationship with their employees to make it a better place to work, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we were actually talking about like workplace stress and mm-hmm. uh, all of that. So you want to you want to minimize the stress. So is there are there initiatives um, at RSM around employee? Um, Reduction of stress, happy work, work-life balance, etc. Does does RSM do that kind of, you know, employee benefits? Certainly, absolutely. We have a coach on call program where our employees can actually call and talk to Coach Karen, and she can coach them through individual um, issues that they might be facing or challenges. I need a Coach Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a financial coach, a um, social worker, a psychologist? Uh, 
career counselor? I would say yes to all of the above. Uh, If she can't help you with a particular issue or challenge, she can connect you with someone who can. Uh, And, of course, we always have have a number of programs offered through our our traditional benefits program Mm -hmm. that help as well. And um, there are a variety of things. We also have a, um, a very active culture diversity and inclusion initiative, our employee network groups. We have 11 of those in place, and they are employee-led, and uh, they are continuously looking for opportunities to help our employees build their networks and to address topics and issues and, important to and them. And is this across the different, all the different offices, or is it usually within a, a specific office? So the groups are nationwide, uh-huh. and, you know, technology is a wonderful right, thing. We right. can connect with one another that way. Uh, but there are certainly local opportunities as well. Um, we have, uh, for instance, uh, this is uh, Spanish um, Heritage Month, I believe, uh, Hispanic American Heritage Month, uh-huh. that, my mistake. Um, so we have our OLA employee network group scheduling activities across the firm, and they might, they might vary from office to office, uh, but they're also promoting it via internal communications and external communications via our website and our uh, social media channels. So there are a lot of opportunities for them to connect with one another. Uh, new Parents, Family First, is, is one of our organizations, and a lot of new parents belong to that group. Mm-hmm. So they can connect with other parents and, and you know, learn from one another. Okay, what did you do when your child wasn't sleeping through the night for four weeks in a row? Um, so it's a great opportunity to make connections with people like yourself and or connect with people that maybe you're not as much like them, but you want to learn more about them. So great networking opportunities there. We Again, we have 11 of those in place, uh, place that are, again, uh, employee-led and run. And so they base their programs on what employees are telling them are important to them and what they want or need. And, and from a business angle, are you seeing that increase employee engagement? Are you seeing this reduced turnover? Yeah. yeah. I don't really know about retention numbers, but certainly we see a lot of employee engagement through those employee network groups. I don't know the exact number of employees who belong, but you can also belong to multiple groups. So if one or more speaks to you, you can join as many as you want. Uh, Our STAR Women's uh, Network is uh, probably one of the largest and most active. And we recently uh, pulled a group of those individuals together to do some training for them specific to them as women. What's different for them uh, what in the work say? environment? Uh, well, it was interesting. We got a feedback on the tail end saying, you know, we're really glad you did this. It was really nice being in here with a bunch of females. I mean, certainly we work with males all day, every day, but they, you know, gave us feedback that they actually were able to share some things in that session that they probably would not have shared had had they had their male counterparts in the room. And, and you know, was that is that something you think made them feel, you know, Cheryl's referencing like psychological stress, you know, that made them feel less stressed at work? Did it give them connections that um, will help them get promoted and, and achieve new professional levels. What were the sort of outcomes that these inputs are helping to drive? So the session was actually um, about training our professionals on our middle market business index, which is a quarterly economic publication that we issue, and helping them take a deep dive in that and understand that content better and why that's important to our middle market clients uh, so that they can in turn help articulate that to our clients and prospects. And so it was it was really a business focus, but we did tailor the training a bit for a female audience, an all-female audience. And so, again, the feedback we, that we got was, you know, well, I, you know, I certainly ask more questions than I might would have had I had my male counterparts in here um, who might have known more about the economic issues or had a deeper understanding of Econ 101. So it's about business outcomes. It's about getting them to the point where they're comfortable talking about some of those more complex issues, um, but, you know, doing that and learning about it in a very safe environment. Interesting. Okay, last question as we head into into the uh, break and a little, little break before our next guest. How is it tailored differently for an all-female audience? Well, so there were a number of things we did. Uh, for instance, uh, very simple, we had the training conducted by an all-female staff, whereas the training is typically a combination of males and females. Um, we had an all-female audience, 
and we had sprinkled leadership quotes from women throughout the training session because you know you'll always hear there aren't that many women who who you know really made a place for themselves in history but there are when you start seeing you know every other slide every third or fourth slide have a quote from an empowered very smart woman you think okay yeah this yeah, is yeah. this is great <laughs> um, and some other tweaks to the content itself but it was all about packaging it and presenting it differently Interesting. Well, we are sadly at the end of our segment. Terry, thank you very much for joining us. That was Terry Andrews from RSM, and this is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM Business Radio. Our next guest joining us is Stephen Lang, CEO of Danker. Stephen, welcome to Dollars and Change. Uh, thank you very much, and really thank you for having me here. This we're, is exciting. We're glad to do so. It's, it's a lot of fun. You guys can all hear the, the noise in the background, the energy of this event. Um, and Stephen's bringing the energy as well. We, we're having some great chat before the recording. So, Stephen, welcome. Tell us first to start, what is Danker for folks who aren't familiar? Yeah, thank you. So, Danker is a very large commercial interiors company. We help big corporations, mostly Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies, fit out their commercial interior space from architecture, furniture, and technology. And we also work with large healthcare institutions and some large universities. Excellent. So the, the opportunities for impact are, are abundant. Um, why don't I start by asking you to tell us, how do you, how do you think about impact when you're thinking about the multitude of ways you could make it through this company? So we're a relatively small middle market company. We're about $135, $140 million in revenue. We have about 250 employees uh, we do business around the country, but we're primarily located in New Jersey and Washington, D.C. Um, I, I think about making an impact in two ways, really. One is through our people and some of the things that they do every day, myself, my leadership team, and all of our employees, and then our business. And I think we have a unique um, opportunity, and we're creating some more opportunity to be more sustainable, to help clients think about sustainability yeah. in unique ways as they think about the interior space. I have to ask, you know, we sit in a university. Um, what do you see changing around how space needs to be used or what, you know, the sense of community on campus? Because we've seen this, you know, evolution from the horseshoe classrooms, the flat flex classrooms, you know. I have to ask, you know, what, are, what do you see around, the, around that evolution? And Sandy's very concerned with space. We have an open office and she's always trying to figure <laughs> out how to, how to you know, just, finagle it better. It seems like one of those things you're like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think I can say <laughs> damn because it's XM radio. But once you design space like this, now it's open, concepts are over, and then when you're closed, it's closed, walls are bad, and, you know, it's a tough thing. So what are some of the trends you're seeing around how people do their best work? It's, uh, it's a really, really great question, and it's at the epicenter of where we live every day. So the first thing I'd say is um, there is not a one-size-fits-all mentality, right? It really depends on the work that's being done. Let's use the classroom as an example. What type of work is done in the classroom? And by the way, how is that work in the classroom evolved over the last 15, 20, or 30 years, right? It's no longer heads down looking at the professor at the front of the room. We learn today in more of a collaborative way. So mm -hmm. can the space, can the physical environment, the desks and chairs, the technology, can it be malleable? Can it be reconfigurable with ease? So we don't have to call the facility manager. The kids can literally wheel their chairs around do a collaborative exercise, and then get back in rows and listen to the teacher finish a lecture. So for me, that's really, really exciting. I have some folks uh, coming in from Seton Hall next week, uh, a group of students who are studying, remarkably, the workplace of the future. Oh, neat. And so we're going to collaborate. We're going to talk. And I'm more interested. Actually, they may be interested in what we think. <laughs> but ironically, I'm more interested oh, in what yeah. they think because you know these, this is the next generation, right? These are college students that are actively looking at uh, what work will be like mm -hmm. in the next 15 or 20 years. Yep. So We're going to um, have to do a follow-up after they do that to well, see what the workplace of the future is going to look like. And it, you know, not a week goes by that I don't <laughs> see the whole sitting is the new smoking thing and yeah. you know, the standing desk. Today I listened to a podcast on my way in, and it was about the furniture-free movement. No furniture, always standing. <laughs> or, or, or I guess sitting on the floor or laying, but it's trying to encourage, like, you should stand in your living room and have a conversation versus, oh. anyway. Uh, <laughs> might not be good for business for, for Danker. But so let's move on to uh, maybe any insights on health care, because you guys are in hospital systems, correct? Ooh, such another good question. So, you know, it is one of the fastest growing industries, obviously because of the aging population mm -hmm. in the United States, but one of the fastest growing industries um, from, from servicing the needs of healthcare patients. But from my business, when I think about growth, healthcare is the number one growth area because space has not kept up. 
Mm. So the environment of healthcare and how the healing process works, how we communicate and use some of the technology in an intimate setting, right? If we're yeah. looking at something uh, and we're with a family and the doctor or a nurse practitioner has to communicate, does the environment support that or is mm-hmm. it very sterile and mm-hmm. stoic? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things like lounge seating, soft seating, access to technology and screens that can be um, uh, reoriented or reconfigured in a way that in- mm-hmm. establishes some privacy. Even the waiting room, right? I mean, yeah. do we have just a bunch of chairs lined up or can the waiting room be a place where we can socialize, where small groups can mm-hmm. get together and do what needs to be done while they're waiting for the patient? You're right, because it usually is sort of the two two rows, rows of facing yeah. one another right. sort of awkwardly. So you're there with a loved one, you're sitting yeah. next to yeah. the, you know. Uh, and then, yeah. uh, not to interrupt, think about the hospital room itself. Mm-hmm. So the room, and inevitably hospitals, just like big corporations, yep. change, right? So when you start knocking down drywall and opening up that space, and this is what we do every day, you find that it's messy. There's mm-hmm. a lot of downtime. It's not really a clean environment from a health perspective. Mm-hmm. So we're feeling and we're seeing a huge impact in modular construction in the, the hospital space itself. So the room, the actual patient room, there's no longer drywall. It's modular construction. Oh, it's a fixed. It's a fixed to the brick and mortar of the building, and it's malleable. You can move it around. Panels come huh. off. You can access med gases. You can put new technology in as the technology changes. And by the way, it changes every three to five years. Sure. So these are things that hospitals, particularly leading hospitals, are starting mm-hmm. to talk to us about, and and we're building those spaces much differently than we built them 15, yeah. 10, 15 years ago. And that's really fascinating. Are these, um, you know, one of the issues that we were thinking about was uh, sustainability, right? Yes. And green, all that kind of stuff. Are these modular systems more environmentally sound because they're not, that you know, they can be repurposed, reused, et cetera? So here's a great stat for you. Um, one of the manufacturers, we work with many manufacturers, about 200 of them actually, um, one company that we work with is out of Calgary, Canada. The name of the firm is called Dirt, D-I-R-T-T. Do it right this time is what it stands for. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. And they are a complete engineered environment for health, healthcare, hospital, and the corporate world. Um, so far, just this year, we fit out 165,000 square feet of modular interior construction space, and we avoided. If that space were to be repurposed or mm-hmm. reconfigured, it would have produced about 105,000 pounds of waste in drywall wow. and wow. carpet scraps. And what do you do? That's landfill? That's just landfill. That's almost 53 tons of wow. waste that's wow. avoided. And as you pointed out, Cheryl, the reconfigurability, that space that can be clipped open, we can get behind the med gases, we can do things differently, and then put it back together and repurpose it without any mess, without wow. any wow. downtime. Yeah. So it, it really is the future of construction in the commercial office space, but very much in the healthcare space as well. Yeah, and it, I mean, it is in a way a customer service industry. People make their decisions about their healthcare systems based on what the room looks like and, and their, you know, their experience. And then you hear these statistics like patients with a plant in their room or who have a window with sunlight like do recover better and live longer and all these different things. So space does matter, right? There's a huge impact. Um, one of the bigger, tougher questions for us across the board is how to measure that impact. So how do you guys think about that? Obviously, the tons of waste spared is a great way to look at it. Are there any other metrics that you measure? So well-being is, a, is one of those soft measurements, mm-hmm. right? How do you feel about the space? How does it work? Um, how comfortable are we? How configurable it is? Um, when you do that and you measure that space in a commercial environment, commercial office environment, there are now technologies available, and we're using them, that are sensor-based that will tell us how many people are in a space, how often they use the space, wow. how they've Ooh. used it, which like technology they use, in, in effectively a heat map. Wow. And so we're now going back to facility managers and corporate real estate executives and saying, hey, listen, we've just fit out this space along with the architect and the construction mm-hmm. firm. We fit this space out, but these particular areas are not working as efficiently as they should. We need to reconfigure. We need to rethink. We need to explore why that is. Wow. I mean, that is, that is super, super. And when you talk about efficiency, right, does that mean, you know, a new space to be able to have one more patient or one more classroom or, you know, a smaller class size because you, you're able to flex some of the space? Um, our great conversation 
is coming rapidly to an end. That's the downside of these exciting the downside, live events. Exactly. Um, so, you know, last question, you know, what else should listeners know about Danker? Um, we've been around since 1829. Whoa! It's a very, very long time. Obviously, we you evolved. don't look it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we evolved since then. But, uh, you know, we're, we're passionate about helping people think about space differently. And we believe all of the 200 and almost 40 employees we have, oh. we believe that space actually makes a difference in your life, in your health and well-being, mm-hmm. and certainly in the office environment where, unfortunately, uh, we spend an awful lot, a of, lot time. of time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, the studies showing the impact of work life and the, the psychological experience, stress levels, physical experience, you know, are... It is overwhelming evidence in, in support of that. Very much so. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great segment, Stephen. Um, thank you for telling us more about Danker and their amazing social impact. This is Dollars and Change here at the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia on Business Radio. Um, right now, I'd like to welcome our next guest, who is Nancy Richardson, CEO of San Antonio Shoemakers. Nancy, welcome to Dollars and Change. Morning. <laughs> we were all full of coffee. The coffee is flowing here. Um, so, Nancy, tell us a little bit about San Antonio Shoemakers. How big's the company? How old's the company? What do they do? So, we were started in 1976 by two gentlemen who had spent their whole career in shoemaking. And at a time when a lot of people were going overseas with manufacturing, they really committed to making shoes in the U.S. So here we are 42 years later, still making shoes in San Antonio and Del Rio, Texas. We um, operate about 200 stores across the United States. In addition, we're about in a thousand retail doors that are not our own, and we export to 18 foreign countries. Wow. And is it a particular... Uh, style, style you know, type of shoe? or yes. I'm looking at your shoes now. <laughs> we really feel like people should not be forced to make a decision between style and comfort. So we work really hard every day to make sure that our product both makes you feel great as well as look great. Excellent. Mm. And so talk to us about how San Antonio Shoemakers thinks about social impact. Uh, is it in that, you know, comfort health dimension of the footwear um, or, or is it beyond that? It's beyond that. Um, first, we like to look at our own team and say, how do we make give them the best life as our employees? So we do a variety of things. We do free flu shots. We do a lot of health testing on site. We do mammograms on site. We really look and say, what things can we do? Our factory shift runs from 7 to 3.30. We're a predominantly female workforce. So they can get up, feed their kids, get their kids ready for school, and they're getting home about the time that their kids come home from school. Was that intentional? Is that why you had those hours set? It is. Interesting. It is. Um, We also, you know, try once a month to do something a little different take 15 minutes out of the work day whether it's on valentine's day cupid comes through and gives candy to everybody or if it's at thanksgiving time we actually put tables down the middle of the factory with tablecloths and all have a a dinner together to be grateful for what's happened that year we really try to work hard to create a family environment and make sure everyone's well taken care of it's some of those principles that we decided a few years ago to expand. And so we started doing um, Thanksgiving meals for the service men and women. We work with Operation Homefront. We go to six bases at Thanksgiving, well, actually the week before Thanksgiving, and they get everything they need for Thanksgiving dinner, the turkey, the dry goods, a gift card to the store to buy perishables that aren't in their box. Um, So we look for opportunities to serve others. Since we're a mid-market company and not a large company, we can't always write the multi-million dollar check for a charity or an organization. So we look for opportunities to go out ourselves. After Harvey, our care and comfort team went out and we visited four cities that had been affected. We're looking at going to the Carolinas in the next few weeks. And what we do is we load up a lot of shoes on a truck And we essentially go out and put up a pop-up store, but you get free shoes if you've been affected. So we go Mm -hmm. with T-shirts and socks and shoes. And we know the simple act of having someone take off your shoes, 
measure your foot, put on new shoes, especially when you've been through a very devastating event, says that someone cares about you and wants to be there for you. Yeah, when you think about the health impact of, you know, cold, wet feet, and, you know, maybe heat not being on yet, or, you know, all these different conditions you can imagine. And who knows if you, you you may have only that one pair of shoes that you were wearing when you, you know, fled your home. Correct. That's what we found with Harvey, is many people who came in, they were wearing shower slippers or Mm flip-flops at the time that they realized they had to evacuate, and that's all they've been in for a few weeks. So it can be very rewarding for us, but also very caring for the people that have been affected. Sure. As you think about, it sounds like, you know, a large part of the impact or how you think about it really starts with your people, like high quality, you know, um, employee experience. And Mm -hmm. um, are are there ever trade-offs that are made that are difficult for the business line, you know, the, the bottom line of the business? So I'm thinking about, you know, this turning point when everyone started sort of outsourcing production abroad and you said we're keeping it in Texas Um, you know how do you how do you manage those trade-offs it is a balancing act we you have to really understand who you are and what your values are and what's important to your ownership base we know we can't make a $19 shoe that's going to be sold in Target or Walmart or another place because our employee pool and what we need to pay people here in the U.S. would not allow for that. It's part of the luxury we have, frankly, as being a privately held company. Mm -hmm. It's not always about maximizing that quarter's results. Mm -hmm. We can look at items and say, what is important to us as a company this year, five years, 10 years, 50 years from now? And we as a company are 100% committed to U.S. manufacturing so we plan our product and plan our life around making sure that that stays intact. Yeah. How about um, uh, environmental impact? I'm just going to go there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we spent too much time together. <laughs> um, this is only our seven t- 700th series show or something like that. Um, but how do you think about, you know, the products, leather, plastics? You know, there's a host of social impact issues nested in every part of the shoe, I imagine. Um, how, how do you guys approach that? Sure. It's through a variety of things. One is since we are predominantly female, we can employ quite a few pregnant women at any Mm -hmm. time. So we're very conscious and aware and alert to anything that we use in the factory that could potentially be an issue. So we're, we're very proactive about making sure that the work environment is safe for all people and especially expectant moms. And then it goes beyond that. You know, you have to look and say what new materials are there Um, what new processes are there maybe for recycling that didn't exist 10, 15, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And it is a continual learning process to say, yes, this was used at one time, but it has such an environmental impact. Maybe we don't want to use it today. What are the substitutes out there? So it's really challenging ourselves on a continual basis to say, what do we want to use in our product what is available that wasn't available before, maybe what should we discard that we've used in the past. So it's, it's, a, it's a continual learning and cycle that you have to go through. Yeah, and I think that it's but one of the things I was thinking about that's interesting. Now there, there are some companies that are creating leather from um, labs, you mm-hmm. know, not from animals kinds of things. So it's, it's very interesting to sort of see where technology is taking materials that you that you work with when you're building your shoes. Yes, and I was actually surprised to read yesterday in an article that a lot of the newer fabrics, I had not thought about this, but when you wash them, they're actually discarding plastic. And so even while there's a lot of good things about them, there's also side effects to everything mm. that we may not think about. Um, so we know as humans that there will always be something we we don't know when we start something, but it's definitely worth looking at a lot of new materials and seeing what we can can do with them. Yeah, because you are, um, you know, San Antonio Shoemakers is, is a, a product that is consumer facing. I'm curious, Nancy, about the trends you've seen and how you've responded to how customers care about the impact practices, the employee practices. You know, if you if you saw San Antonio Shoemakers box or billboard in 1980 versus today you know does it talk more about the impact how you know what how what are you responding to in that dimension so we we probably haven't been as proactive as we could be um disclosing things perhaps on the front end i would say that we certainly get a lot more emails and questions about 
our practices than you would have 30 years ago, probably even 10 years ago. Um, So we have talked about, do we go back to our website and create a tab and talk about social Mm -hmm. awareness, social initiatives, so that we put it out there so that rather than just responding to consumers, we get out in front of it and talk about it first. I'd say yes, you should. I think so too. (laughs) Well, you know, it is just, it's very, um, the the commitment to your employees is very impressive, you know, and, um, and I think what we see is certainly an increase in consumer, you know, demand for transparency and really understanding, you know, what that looks like. And then also, um, you know, that they're willing to sort of vote with their dollar and, you know, and try to, not a week goes by without another article about, you know, building a sustainable wardrobe and which brands and, you know, all these different things. So there, there's definitely a lot of interest, you know, interest there. What's next as you guys think about impact at San Antonio Shoemakers? What are the areas that you're, you know, eager to tackle or interested in exploring? So for us, it's a whole variety of things going, becoming a global (laughs) company has been a relatively new experience for us. So we think that there's a lot of growth for us overseas. We also know that being a retailer, in addition to a manufacturer, that the retail environment's changing a lot in that for people to come to stores today, it is more about the experience than it is just coming to shop for a product. So we're looking at, like many other retailers, how do we attract more people to our retail stores? You know, is it is it better to have perhaps more than our brand there? Do you offer an experience once a week or once a month that gets people attracted to the stores? You know, life is all about the challenges and how you deal with them. So for us, it's really continually questioning ourselves. What are we? What does the consumer want? How does our view of ourselves fit with what the consumer wants today and how do we adjust to better fit in their in their view and yeah. their quest for what they want and i think your point about the retail is so interesting we had a um, show a couple of months ago where the <coughs> guest was talking about how more and more retail companies are are building an experience and she pointed out something a local one united by blue where what they do is they actually have um cl- river cleanups and park cleanups because they part of what they do is a portion of their product goes to cleaning up the ocean, et cetera. But they're engaging their consumers by having them engage in an experience where they're going out and cleaning the rivers. And this is kind of building the brand loyalty, the brand visibility, and cleaning water up at the same time. Yeah. We were talking to Nancy Richardson, CEO of San Antonio Shoemakers, about you know what, what consumers are demanding of, of sort of retail investors these days and that experiential side. Um, is that anything you guys are seeing and doing? What are, you know, what is your customer demographic you seem know, passionate what, about? Yeah, what is the customer demographic? So we focus on 35 and above uh-huh. um, for a couple of different reasons. One is when you're younger, you tend to be very trendy. Since we, since we are not the lowest price product, we're not throwaway fashion. And so you are making an investment when you buy one of our shoes. Our shoes last many years. So we feel like 35 is where you start to to be more focused on making a better investment in your in your wardrobe and your shoes. We also, our shoes in many cases deal with, um, I don't want to say foot issues, but yeah. people's needs. If you're standing on your feet all day teaching or as a surgeon or you go on a trip and you walk five or six miles in a day, that's really what our shoes are designed for. We are one of the few people that we still start with a block of wood. At the beginning of the process and say, what are we creating this shoe for? And so what does the the shoe need to look like to accommodate that need? So we start with the block of wood and truly build a shoe for whatever purpose we're creating it for. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Anything with regards to like the health impact? So I'm thinking about, you know, all the ways a shoe company can be thinking about impact somehow came up earlier. Oh, we were talking to someone about space, like sort of designing spaces and buildings and you know, the whole sitting is the new smoking phenomena, as we sit here mm-hmm. for two hours <laughs> interviewing people. Um, but, you know, uh, are you seeing any trends in, you know, how customers are prioritizing, you know, ergonomics over style and, and how, you know, is how's the health and impact sort of integrating with their buying yes. patterns? <laughs> so, again, you know, we focus kind of on the intersection of style and comfort to make sure we don't want to put you in a pair of shoes that you don't feel good about because they don't look good, mm-hmm. even though they make your feet feel good. So we work really hard to find that nice intersection. We get 
emails every day where somebody says, my back hurt, I found out about your shoes, I'm wearing your shoes, my back no longer hurts, or people will write in and say, I used to wear orthotics, then I found your shoes, and I haven't had to do that anymore. So we know the reality is if your feet hurt, you You will not Uh feel good all day. And so that is our goal every single day is when you put on a pair of our shoes, there's no breaking in period is once you put them on your feet, you feel good. Your day's going to be much better. It's nothing worse than having to break in shoes. Oh, it, it's not fun. And you know what? I feel like it's very, um, in, in like early spring, you start to see people with a lot of band-aids. Like they're going <laughs> from, you know, like a, a cozy yeah. winter boot to breaking in the, you know, whatever the summer and yeah. spring, the spring footwear is. Uh, very neat. Well, we have just time for one more question. So, Nancy, tell us, you know, what's what's next for San Antonio Shoemakers? What's on the horizon? Honestly, we just want to keep doing what we're doing, which is make great shoes every day and putting on people's feet. So the more people we can get into our shoes, we feel like the happier the universe will be. Great. So check out San Antonio Shoes. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so very much for joining us. That was Nancy Richards of San Antonio Shoemakers, and this is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM's Business Radio. We are here at the CEO Connections 2018 Mid-Market Convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And our next guest joining us is Paul Sacconi. Paul is the CEO of Able Services. Welcome to Dollars and Change. And we just have a session letting out, too, so (laughs) we can see all the energy and activity behind us. Oh, very nice. It's great to join you. We are thrilled to have you here. So why don't we start at the beginning. Tell our listeners what Able Services is. Well, Able Services is a, a solution provider in facility services and commercial real estate. So we employ and operate a janitorial division, an operations and maintenance division, and an integrated facility management. Uh, I like to say we operate commercial real estate. We do everything but collect rent. There you go. And, you know, we service uh, several verticals throughout the United States. We're primarily only in the United States and most of the major markets. So we service high-rise office buildings, uh, hotels, data centers, mission-critical environments like laboratory space, Mm. universities, sports arenas, high-rise residential, corporate campuses. So anywhere where uh, an owner or an operator needs uh, somebody else to help service and manage their real estate so that they can perform their function in their business. Excellent. Over 17,000 employees, I think I saw. We do. We're uh, we're in most of the major cities, and... uh, you know, it will, it will fluctuate uh, back and forth depending on the types of contracts and, and the deals that happen. And, you know, today we service about a billion square feet of real estate wow. across the United States and employ, uh, at this point, 17,000 people. Wow. And, and a lot of the work I was reading about Able Services Impact really stems from that, um, you know, the lead certification, the environmental impact of the buildings that you're working on and serving. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you think about impact and how you approach this work. I think I'll take a little bit of a step back. Uh, About four years ago, we're a company that has history since 1929. And uh, we have a family ownership that has uh, existed since 1951. So the the company has over 90 years of history. And success uh, over a period of time, uh, we knew that uh, several years ago, the things that made us successful uh, all those years weren't necessarily going to be the continue to be the things that would make you successful in the future. Certainly, our culture was was a significant piece of that. Uh, our family environment. So we really looked uh, about four years ago to to really reestablish and update our vision and our mission of our company and and understand how that connects with today's workforce, which right. for many of us is a totally different environment than what we were accustomed to. And, and to be successful, we had to be sure that we could attract and retrain the best people and what really mattered to them. So we revisited our mission and our vision. Uh, today, our mission is working together to deliver valuable work-life experiences. And that's the work your, That's your mission? That's our mission. Wow. Um, so where we came with that is because we like to look at it that, you know, when you talk about social change, we're service at work. We're where everyone works and lives. So whether it's high-rise residential where you live or it's a, a high-rise office building where you work, we're impacting people in their daily lives, whether mm-hmm. they're, they're living or they're uh, at home or they're working. And many of our employees, there's a crossroads there. So it was very important to us to figure out how do we adapt in the social change environment and the types of things that, that we can do. So you know, one of those things that we felt like was very important 
for us is to be very active in the scholarship world with universities, both on a public and a private basis. Mm -hmm. So uh, we spend a lot of time and effort and, and donations uh, giving to scholarship funds. Uh, and we allow the universities who have the experts to make those best choices, right? Because, you know, we empower them to do that and we, we do that. In addition to that, one of the biggest components of our core values, right, of, of teamwork, and you talked about being sustainable in everything that you can do, is uh, we hire a tremendous amount of interns uh, throughout the country. Uh, and they're in all the areas that we service. So we might have them in human resources. We might have them in the engineering side. We might have them on the business side or finance and accounting. And part of that responsibility is not only to help educate them from a mentorship or teach them business, but also to be sure that you can assist them financially too. So it's very important for us to be sure that we establish a, a credible uh, wage for them when they come to work and, and that we're flexible and how they want to schedule that time, and, and that has been enormous for us. We've learned as much as they probably have in the process of, of doing that. And the sustainability isn't just with people, it's also in some of the programs, and, and you had asked a little bit about that. Uh, one of the critical things that, that we're very strong in is the energy star world. And uh, we were part of uh, really helping the first platinum building in the U.S., the EPA building in California. Oh. Uh, we operate probably... Uh, over 200 buildings that are considered in the top 25% of their energy efficiency uh, as rated by Energy Star. Um, when we looked at our vision and we said work life and, and, and our mission associated with it, we said to ourselves, well, you can't just say it. You have to have ways that yep. you can prove that right. out, right? right? Which is a lot of the things that you're probably hearing some wonderful things from folks today. So our corporate office, which is in San Francisco, uh, happens to be a building that we own. Uh, we worked very hard to ensure we could get that Energy Star rating, sure, which we yeah. were successful in doing. Um, and that becomes a, a really, really important piece. We're very involved as a janitorial company in green cleaning. I was just going to ask about that. So uh, we're fortunate enough that we have some of the early founders of the development of the green cleaning standard as part of our company. And uh, being able to do things that protect the environment, that don't release the VOCs in the workspace. That mm -hmm. are, I mean, it's... a you know, 25 years ago, you know, we knew that was uh, there were issues associated with VOCs and, and how cleaning happened. And today we understand so much more. So virtually all of our cleaning is green cleaning. Um, Which is better for the, your workers as well. It's, it's better for our workers. It's better for the environment. It's better for the, for the occupants of the building. You can still deliver a great product, and, uh, and it's much safer. And I was going to ask, does it cost more? So are there any of these trade-offs where, you know, the more safe, sustainable, green solution, you know, carries a higher price tag. And do you, you know, do you absorb that? Do you have clients that are eager to absorb that because the prior, their priorities are shifting? You know, in the, in the early days of, of especially the movement associated with green cleaning, sure, it was more expensive. Just, just the, the same way it is when we look at lead certification sure. for building assets today. So, but over time, as more and more uh, companies get involved in, and more companies are following through that, we recognize the benefits. And, uh, and as long as you're training well and you're investing that upfront time, the cost actually in the long run is, it can almost be less because it's the benefits that you, you realize, right? Uh, it's the things you don't have to do because it was a Haddis product. And, and so if you look at the full life cycle of that, the reality is it, it's probably better for all of us. Uh, and many of our clients are, are huge supporters of, of the sustainable products and, and, and the programs. And that makes sense because then you get that, they come to you because you've got that kind of expertise and they're able to integrate it in a variety of ways. And so it really, I, it's for, so for LEED certification, is it require, there's no requirement about cleaning afterwards or anything like that, right? Well, there's... Depending on the type of asset you uh -huh. have, uh, there are there are uh, significant amounts of that requirement that fall into our operations. So on the engineering side, there's many points and programs right. that you have to do. On the cleaning side, as you're asking, there are uh, there's certain one of the biggest pieces is the type of products that you're using, and that you have to demonstrate that you can't just say it; you have to be able oh, to prove it. Oh, right? So there so, is sort of a follow-up. So, so there is a follow-up to tracking cutting, the data yeah. and, and keeping track and being able to prove that over time when you do your recertification 
that you you know truly are continuing to do that. Oh, so that is a big piece, yeah. and we participate very closely with our, with with owners and operators uh, on that process. Right. So that and that becomes interesting because it's a an ongoing commitment. Then you have to sort of it's like recommitting yourself by using the cleaning the right cleaning materials, etc. So that's yeah, that's very great. Yeah, I had not known about that dimension no. of, of lead certification. Um, Paul, our listeners, you know, we always try to make sure we, we're giving our listeners some advice, uh, you know, from these experts that we have the pleasure of talking to, you know, for folks who are managing a building, managing just an office, um, what are some things they could do uh, to, to sort of head in the right direction from a sustainability perspective? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things. Uh, number one, I think it really comes down to it just depends on your level of expertise and that you recognize that there's a tremendous amount of things that you can do. Um, but, and, and that's where a lot of times failure can happen. Uh, we always recommend, you know, identify what's critical to, to you and your company and to the environment and the people in the building, right? What, what's really important for you as an organization? And then f- determine who can best help you get there, whether there's components of the LEED certification that you can, you can incorporate and accomplish yourself. There's professionals that really know how to do it that can save time, can save money, and can assist you in the process. And then there's service providers like Enable Services that can really help and assist you on the process of getting there and continuing to stay there. So uh, it can be overwhelming at times, uh, but we always encourage talk to those that have gone through it, right? Because, you know, it's really easy to make mistakes. It's not a hard process. But there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of responsibility associated with it. So you really have to be sure that you're committed to doing right, that. Right. Um, because it's not just you as an owner and operator. It's involving your tenants in the building and the communication and involving your service providers. So it's really a team effort uh, and a partnership to truly be successful in the long term. Excellent. Paul, this is fascinating stuff. I can't believe we're getting the, the one-minute sign one minute here from sign. our producer. It's com- coming quickly to an end. Um, What's next for, for Able Services, briefly? You know, uh, one of the things that we're really excited about is, you know, our, our organization is getting younger all the time. And, <laughs> and, and so we look at it that we're really uh, engaged with some of the new dynamics associated with sustainability and that it's really important for people to come to work for a company that really has a cause, mm-hmm. right? And so sustainability is important. Zero waste is a huge item right now uh, that's, that's really taking over in the, in the sustainability world. So... We're very engaged in helping our clients and, and uh, understand how they can impact zero waste, and uh, it's complicated. Uh, we've kind of done a lot of the, the, the homework on that end to really help them be successful should they have an interest in that area. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Paul Sconi from Able Services. Um, Gosh, this show has gone by quickly here. Quickly. This, this live edition of Dollars and Change from the floor of the CEO Connection Mid-Market Convention uh, here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We want to give a big thank you to everyone, everyone involved, all eight of our wonderful guests today, our producer, our sound engineer, to my co-host, Cheryl Coleman. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. We hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Join us next week for another great episode of Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.